0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, beaming to you across the airwaves in London and across the world. I'm your host, James Butler. And before we jump into this week's show, uh, I want to flag up its our annual fundraiser here at Resonance. And this year we're trying to raise £100,000 so we can move the studios and improve the facilities so if you like what you hear on resonance please uh, support the fund the fundraiser and go to fundraiser.resonance.fm where you will find full details of the many live events across central london including the premiere of william english's new film it's my own invention next thursday at the close-up film center Also at fundraiser.resonance.fm, you will find the many items in the online auction. Uh, And you can go to the Navarra Media Facebook page or the Navarra Media Twitter where you can find uh, a link to where we're raising money for Resonance FM and just some of the things that we enjoy uh, that are going on at the station. So if you've got enough stuff in your life as it is and just want to sit back and listen to the radio, whether it's Resonance FM or Resonance Extra, the exciting experimental branch uh, of Resonance FM, then just make a donation of any amount. It's all at fundraiser.resonance.fm. As of this morning, we've raised over £24,650 thanks to brilliant volunteers and many, many generous supporters, among them Club Integral, Eastcast, Neil's Yard Dairy, The Oxo Tower Restaurant, Olivier's Bakery, Rock Audio, Bella Freud... Uh, Honor cut Vinyl, Faber and & Faber, and The Vaults. Join them! You will be in good company at fundraiser.resonance.fm So... This week has seen celebrations in the press and in Parliament of the anniversary of the Representation of the People Act 1918, billed by some as the centenary of women's suffrage with politicians and pundits lining up to pay tribute of a kind to the women who drove the suffrage movement, often with some significant historical lacunae uh, Or as uh, Leah EP, who is a Professor of Politics at the LSC, put it in a tweet, Today we celebrate 100 years since women with no property and no degrees, pretty much everyone in the colonies and men under 21 were denied the right to vote. Joining me on today's show to discuss then and now are three brilliant women, two of whom, had they been living in 1918, would not have been enfranchised by this act. (laughs) I'm joined by Zoe Williams, who is a journalist and columnist at The Guardian. Ash Sarkar, senior editor here at Navarra Media, who has been all over the press this week in a full spectrum battle to bring some relevance to the suffrage conversation. Uh, And Eleanor Penny, who is also one of our senior editors, uh, who carefully tends our long read section and who has been involved in building for the forthcoming women's strike, which I'm sure we'll come on to discuss today. Welcome all to the show.
1: Hello, Ragwan. Hello
0: uh we can jump into some history in a moment but i just want to hand over to ash for a moment uh to to for some reflections on what it's been like to have this conversation in public because you've been on Newsnight this week but you've also been doing a couple of events i think and also you've been uh in the guardian with an excellent article about terrorism and suffrage um
1: yeah because i don't have tinder so you've got to make sure that your face is out there for the mandem you know and um I was in two minds about whether to tell this story. And in fact, a couple of hours before the show, I rang up James in a complete panic and squawked at him about this dilemma. Because when I do media work, especially TV, I get very confused about green room etiquette. You know, it's this kind of holding paddock before you're trotted out to go live. Because talking there can be very loose. You might see some unexpected chumminess between political opponents. And there is an unspoken sense that everything is meant to be off the record. And personally, I don't say anything that I wouldn't be comfortable um, being made public, even if it's half jokes about nude photos or wavy behaviors. But the encounters that I had this week, I felt were deeply revealing, not in a gotcha journalist sense, but in terms of how feminist discourse is shaped by public figures, the latent political antagonisms within the movement at its most broad, and overall a conflict that emerges from who wants to own what feminism is. And before I start properly, I really want to emphasise that I'm not saying this to shame anyone or fire up the court of Twitter. So when I did Newsnight this week, before it went live, it was me, Harriet Harman, Tracy Emin and Anne Atkins, and we all had a bit of a chat about what we thought about feminism and areas of tension. And Harriet Harman in particular didn't like me talking about the ways in which women of colour struggle had been sidelined by the feminist movement. She felt that my tone was blaming and overly critical. But really, it was Tracy Emin who I found myself in conflict with. So in the green room, we continued to talk a bit about racism and feminism. And I made a comment about the amount of racist abuse I'd faced on the street after the Brexit result. And I think, to be fair to her, Tracy Emin had thought that I was perhaps unappreciative of the changes in race relations over the past 40 years and said whatever I'd experienced, bear in mind, I hadn't actually had the chance to say what I'd experienced. It wasn't real racism. Real racism was what she had grown up with, where people would slash your tires or call her mother N-word lover, except she didn't say N-word lover. She said the N-word. And I'm quoting faithfully here. She said that racism is basically what I've set myself up for because my work is public facing, never mind that I experienced it when I was a bartender or a school child. It was really, really weird. And for me, it wasn't the interaction itself that was uncomfortable, it was what it implied about how these conversations about feminism work. And I want us to address these questions directly today if it's possible. Because when women are set up in conversations like this, especially when there are generational gaps, there seems to be a race to monopolize suffering. So like, me, me, I have lived, I have suffered, you, you don't even know that you're born. And reflecting on a movement's gaps or blind spots is taken as a personal criticism. Or now that intersectionality is somewhat in vogue, you're rushed over telling that alternative story, like, well, we know that history was bad, but what can we do now? Except you don't, you don't know that history. I was telling Harriet Harman and Emily Maitlis about the history of virginity testing at Heathrow Airport right up until the 1980s and Emily Maitlis certainly had no idea that it had even happened. And Harriet Harman just got annoyed at me because I'd mentioned that white feminists didn't really take up that cause. So the questions I'd like for us to address today after spilling a bit of that green room tea is, To what extent is it true that multiple kinds of feminist thought constitute competing interests? How important is talking about experience? And are there drawbacks to a discourse built around disclosure of personal suffering? What's the role of critical or counter histories of the movement? Can that critical eye ever be constructive? And what's the point of celebrating centenaries in radical politics? What's their political utility or value other than getting paid for comment pieces, which I'm very grateful for? So I thought I'd open up with some questions.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking the questions in any particular order, but I think you're completely right that um, there, is, there is a kind of um, very defensive, there's a very defensive old feminist kind of approach so as soon as anybody says as soon as anybody even uses the term women of color that feminists of a certain generation will assume that's an accusation of them and to an extent it is because there were so many blind spots and you know once once you're kind of all blind spot and no sight you have to wonder Sorry, we had a conversation about guide dogs before we came in, and now all my metaphors are going to be sight or, or non-sight. <laughs> but there was such a myopia in that era that you have to wonder whether there was a deliberation to it. And, I, and it kind of reminds me of the, this awful book. Um, I, I'm not going to name it or say the author, but it was a kind of Sunday Times-style columnist. what went wrong with politics sort of book. And it said, you know, we fought all these battles against racism and against sexism and against homophobia, and now we see all our triumphs being rolled back and where do we go wrong? Um, and, I was, and you know, I was looking at this, part, this author and thinking, you didn't fight any of those battles. You so didn't fight those battles, you don't even know who did fight those battles because if you did know who fought those battles, you would know how preposterous it was for you to say that it was you who fought them or even your generation that fought them because she was my generation, kind of early 40s, and actually it was kind of, you know, um, Southall Black Sisters and... Peter Tatchell and, you know, the, the, 20 years before that, where where all that kind of contest took place. So I think not only is there a kind of Harriet Harman style re- kind of bristling at any suggestion of myopia, there is also subsequent to that a sort of really lackadaisical middle-aged understanding of of feminism and identity politics that kind of said, well, because I was contemporaneous with the growth of it, I must have done it. When they didn't... We didn't do fuck all, basically. Oh, we're live. Oh, sorry. (laughs) We're live.
1: We're so sorry, Ofcom. (laughs) (laughs)
2: We're
1: so sorry. Surely I'm allowed to
2: say that.
3: No? This... Always happens in the most feminist episodes. It always <laughs> happens in the fem- feminist no, episodes. The one that we did, we had like um, <laughs> so- we had like
1: four. Uh, Juno, Macken, Lola, um, Ocalozi Ocalozi. just dropping f bombs <laughs> off right Center, and I think that's the sign of a good show. Oh,
2: don't worry, it was my fault. No, <laughs> nobody made me say that. Yeah. Um,
1: think- there was a revolver to Zoe's <laughs> yeah, head.
3: Yeah. There's this um, strange kind of um, like learned helplessness or performed helplessness in the way in which um. Uh, a lot of this stuff is talked about right as soon as the um issue of the continual failure of white feminist movements to properly tackle the material lived conditions of what it is to be a woman of color um and it calls on this sort of you know a presumed fragility of white womanhood which um replays a lot of a lot of tropes which historically actually haven't been particularly um helpful for the enfranchisement of white women either so i really um Struggling to see that why people are playing into that, but there's also I think an interesting um, an interesting way in which um, these kinds of calls to see further, the calls on like um, yeah, white yeah. feminists to um, see beyond themselves, is you know necessary and true. But I think forgets the fact that um, throughout history, it hasn't just been a case of white feminists um, forgetting that the experience of womanhood extends beyond the bounds of you know their own experience particularly um it's also about particular um devil's bargains that were struck between um white middle class women and the structures of um white supremacist state power and that's exactly what happened during yeah, the yeah. during the suffrage movement to
2: go back a, go back a second what do you mean the kind of learned helplessness what what kind of trope are you talking about i
3: mean i'm thinking about like um like oh I just I just didn't know I'm just trying to I'm just trying to learn why are you are getting angry at me? That oh okay kind of okay okay
2: so it's, it's it's a kind of discursive patheticness.
3: Yes exactly yeah. <laughs> that's okay. a really good way of putting it. Okay and uh, there's a there's a lot of um uh there is a, yeah I mean I completely agree there but, is a lot of kind of me, 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 me. why are you so mean to me? <laughs> but, and, and, and it's important to remember that when I mean I'm you know incredibly I think you know grateful and proud of the really militant actions taken by the suffragettes. And there are only like, you know, 5,000 of them tops and 1,000 of them got were arrested and put in jail and essentially tortured. I mean, we talk about force feeding. That looked like, you know, anal rape, drowning, um, like brutalisation. This, this, these things were nasty and they chose to go to prison instead of being fined. Mm. Um, but they um, a, several of these people also ended up Shacking up with the burgeoning fascist movement, because in in a drive towards their own empowerment, they figured out that one of the ways in which they could most directly empower themselves, in like a property relations sense, was by pinning their colours to uh, to their own whiteness and throwing you know, their throwing the throwing right, their so, lot in
0: with so them. So this is this is definitely there in, in in the history here, right? Because the the bill, the 1918 bill, is introduced um, by the Home Secretary in, in Parliament. <clears throat> And you know, and so so lots of these people don't see any contradiction between struggling for suffrage, but also embracing kind of British imperialism, especially, mm. and the kind of the, you know the desire to be kind of coadjutors in in the empire. Um, the the Home Secretary introducing the the, the Representation of the People Bill. Um, said, war by all classes of our countrymen has brought us nearer together, has opened men's eyes and removed misunderstandings on all sides. It has made, I think, impossible that ever again, at all events in the lifetime of the present generation, there should be a revival of the old class feeling which was responsible for so much, and among other things, for the exclusion for a period of so many of our population from the class of electors. I think I need to say no more to justify this extension of the franchise. I think sort of amazing kind of uh, Edwardian subclauses there, but that. that, that <laughs> Revival of the old class feeling isn 't just mm. social class it 's also sexual class gender class um, that wasn 't true was it i mean <laughs> you know, it, it, you know the, 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 I think you know it 's very difficult to to pin exactly how important this act is while also acknowledging. Uh, you know how partial and how limited it was,
2: the thing is is that you you have to you have to make a call ultimately between seeing every between seeing the advancement of every single woman as uh, you know the first bite of the elephant of the elephant eating task of empowering all women or actually acknowledging that the advancement of some women is quite counterproductive <laughs> to the advancement of others, and I think this is the kind of fundamental problem with gender rights generally is that you know to ally with your own gender with no other underpinning ideology is sort of pointless you know why it's, it's 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 just pointless you know if you're not if i'm not allying with sisters because of a belief in equality fundamentally
1: then why ally with them at all but i think that there's an interesting um so we sometimes get split between two tendencies and I think one is that uncritical lionisation of in particular um, Emmeline Pankhurst and you know you sort of alluded to Nora is it Dacre or Dacre I never know Dacre. I think it's Dacre yeah Nora Dacre Fox's um, later involvement with the British Union of fascists but then you had figures like Annie Besant who were quite interesting so she was a big proponent of the Home Rule movement in India and in 1917 she got arrested for it so while most of her contemporaries in England had uh, sworn off those tactics strategically during um, the First World War and had done this kind of pivot to backing imperialist warfare because they saw an opportunity in it. Annie Besant didn't shrug it off, but she was still very much a liberal. So she set up um, the Home Rule Movement alongside Muhammad Ali Jinnah, Baal, uh, uh, Jandahar, um, Tilak, and many others. Um, but essentially that had the sting taken out of it by the time you have the Montague-Chelmsford reforms come in, and they couldn't really deal with an uptick in Indian revolutionary movements at that time. And she said, well, look, India, as well as um, suffragettes at home, India has to see World War I as an opportunity for political enfranchisement here. Here's the moment for the home rule movement to really kick off. uh, She said that England's need is India's opportunity. And so even though she was anti-imperialist in one sense of lobbying for home rule. She also was kind of thinking about this narrative of contribution in wartime and what the Mm -mm 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 -mm. political reward for it would be. And precisely because she'd struck that kind of in-between bargaining, that was why her vision of the movement failed, and why revolutionary ones had to then take over.
0: isn't that just a matter of political calculation, right? I mean, it might, you know, I, I'm, I'm you know, I, I think she was also a Theosophist. Which yeah, was,
1: she was uh, head was of the Indian Theosophist Society. Strange religious
0: movement that we don't hear much about these <laughs> days. It still exists, actually. Um, but <laughs> 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 uh, sorry. Uh, it's fascinating, but but but, 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 that, but that that is this question that, that comes up again and again in the history of, of the suffrage movement. And this is a this is a long movement, right? It's eighteen sixty six until nineteen eighteen. That's you know, it's fifty two years. It's a long time. It's a long, long struggle and long and very difficult struggle. So yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah No, I mean, in fact, listening to you say that, I, part of me does think in any of in any movement that goes on a long time, there are bound to be some. Some dodgy some some wild cards <laughs> yeah, I mean and they just are right i think this
3: um this is why the um the sort of the format of political organizing and a sort of an honest um receptive but critical approach to a very a very diverse and a very complicated very multifaceted movement necessarily because it uh, strategically aimed to use this single issue to unite a whole different mm-hmm. um bunch of different classes of women um, who had this one particular thing in common because of that it, it kind of opens our eyes to the fact that this is this is essentially what politics is right it's a struggle for to bridge some kind of abstraction of common purpose between groups that you know are divided you know consciously and specifically as a means yeah, yeah. Of, of forestalling precisely this kind of mass action. I mean, even 10 years before the franchise was actually granted, they were having rallies of 250,000 people in Hyde Park. This was a mass movement. And yes, obviously... That's like wireless festival numbers. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, seems, that seems like shade. Like, <laughs>
1: no, it's not shade.
2: It's <laughs> not shade. But yeah, I mean, exactly. Um I don't know. I mean, but but it is that it is exactly that thing. You kind of build systematic. I guess the difference between a movement which is united behind a single purpose, and then once that purpose is attained or partially obtained or obtained to the exclusion of some people that the movement doesn't care about, yeah. then the movement kind of dissolves, or a movement that has a kind of purpose. And once that purpose is attained, they get a new purpose. And I think the, I think the difference between those two kinds of movements mm. would be in whether you resolve your internal differences or just don't bother. And I think actually the suffragettes, it was very much a kind of well, we get the vote and then we don't bother.
1: Mm. I mean, I think like one of the things I think is really interesting is how we um, kind of coagulate disparate organisations and tendencies as one movement and that's kind of and this is why i kind of focus on the telling of history the remembering of history and what that says about you know all that time we're looking back through so there wasn't just one suffragette tendency or movement there were obviously moments of mass mobilization and action but there were multiple tendencies and there were a sizable number of conscientious objectors during wartime mm. it was um emeline and christabel who were like no, we're going to pivot away from this and we're going to have the WSPU shrug off militant action for this time period. We're going to really commit ourselves to framing Germany as a male dominated nation who are kind of looking to um, take over Britain, which would make women's conditions worse. And then you have this um, dovetailing. And if you look at the government propaganda posters and uh, a WSPU propaganda and look at them side by side, they start even using similar colour schemes and like women are presented as heroic as they, you know, enter like artillery factories and Mm. stuff like that. So I think it's important to remember that it wasn't like, okay, and then the suffragettes decided that imperialism was good. It was the suffragettes who had an organisational model and a PR machine were able to um, effectively work open that moment. I mean...
0: And the other Pankhurst, of course, needs mentioning. Mm, the I mean, excellent was kicked Sylvia Pankhurst, yes, who was booted from the WSP. Yeah, in, in, in
3: 1914, precisely because she disagreed with this. And obviously it's um, it, she disagreed with it not because um, she was any less committed to the to the strategical uh, or to the to the act of strategizing, which is essentially, as you rightly point out, what this was, right? It wasn't the, you know, suddenly they turned around and started, you know, like, championing imperialism, it was that um, championing imperialism was an acceptable price Mm. to pay for what they saw as the ultimate goal of, you know, middle class white women's suffrage. But um, Sylvia was not so minded, Uh, she thought that uh, she was anti imperialist. Uh, and she was kicked out for mm. complaining against uh,
1: against those things. And she's yeah. an interesting
0: study in what happens after, you know, if you're a politically committed person, you attain a girl. Was well, she then uh, was really really active in in Ethiopia's struggle for for independence? And she's uh, buried, in fact, in Addis Ababa in Holy Trinity Cathedral. Uh, really really interesting. Also founded really paper with the best name of any kind of workers' paper, which it. is Workers Dreadnought. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> started off as women's bread, yeah, and she changed it. Campaign as to rename Navarra <laughs> media. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think I think this stuff is interesting. I mean, I guess the thing when I look back at this, and I I think about the way in which we read history, as you say, Ash, is like you know, and what has been particularly kind of you know weird this this past week is to watch kind of Amber Rudd and Theresa May say, you know, well, maybe we will pardon yeah, yeah, these yeah, women. Yeah.
2: Um, oh, but it but it's some um, I mean, I I guess one of the reasons I've got I've got very competing feelings about kind of valorizing the suffragettes. One of I I hate being on the same side as Amber Rudd and Theresa May, (laughs) and I would much rather find a different side to be on. But I remember being taught this at school and the history teacher saying, describing the suffragette movement and then saying, but, you know, the real the real thing that got the, the women the vote was the first world war and they women had been so helpful hmm. in the war effort that it was <laughs> the decided yeah. there was a reward <laughs> thank and you that, thank uh, you yeah. for all women and and there is something and that was why the part the whole pardoning conversation was so was so disgusting <laughs> because there is there is something about it as a moment in history which validated which kind of uh, made sense of people who should have been in favor of the status quo actually going against it in kind of quite life threatening ways from their mm. own point of view and i think if i think if we stop kind of um if we were to stop valorizing that then we would have lost something really mm. serious I, I think um
3: i don't want to stop valorizing it i think i, f- I want more valorization of the sheer militancy of yeah, 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 uh, yeah. of yeah. their tactics um uh, and uh i think there's a there's a very interesting discussion as to as about um how we historicize political violence and and how that pot- potentially reflects upon you know how we think of political violence today but um maybe we can come on to that but what i um what i really sort of object to in the in the idea of pardoning the suffragettes is because i i kind of wonder what's in this for the pardoners what's in this for the tory party and i hate the idea that this profoundly misogynist administration. This administration, which has rolled out a program of austerity that impact eighty six percent of whose impacts fall upon women, who bang up uh, migrant women in Yarl's Wood, who drop bombs in on women in Yemen, that they can somehow sort of dignify their own political project by totally neutralising the really radical history of the suffragettes because they were trying to break the law. They weren't just campaigning for the vote and accidentally got in trouble with the police. Mm. Getting in trouble with the police was a tactic that they chose and they
1: didn't apologise for it. I don't want them to be apologised for. Also, like, I mean, not to sound like a massive thicko, but I don't care about pardons for the dead. They're dead. They don't know they're pardoned. (laughs) I mean, they don't. What about pardons for the Mau Mau, who are still living? Mm. What about payouts for the Mau Mau, who are still living? So even when we think about... Um, violence that we've contained to the past, there are exclusions or selective blind spots in that as well. I really don't care about pardons for the dead and the dead don't Mm. care either. I care about dealing with maybe the... Those who were lumbered with uh, criminal records for, mm-hmm. pa- you know, participation in the 2011 uprising, six months for a bottle of water, pregnant women serving custodial sentences for handling stolen goods, that kind of thing. Mm. As for uh, the rest of it, I've really struggled to muster the energy for an opinion. Yeah,
0: and, and
3: also, I mean, we have to remember that, like, that kind of um, that process of criminalisation of um, women's participation in... In political life, but also, you know, in life, life generally also is is an axis of disenfranchisement today. Mm. Criminals still don't have the vote. If you are in prison, you don't have the vote, and that is an increasing percentage of uh, of the UK population. And women are making making up a an increasing percentage of. The prison population as Plus well. Plus, growing
1: demographics, Muslims and women, so you've only got me for a few more weeks. Yeah, I think, <laughs> um, speaking, I think that I think that's quite an interesting
2: direction, actually. That if you do want to lord suffragettes up to a point. But you don't want to get involved with Theresa May or Amber <laughs> Raj and you don't want to get involved in just this kind of mock fest where you're just going, "Oh, were not they great? We this is why we really owe it to to vote mm-hmm. every time, even though everybody's I don't want to vote for anybody. I owe it to my foremothers. Um, <laughs> and if you and, and then the the way to do it would be to use it as a pivot for more important activism and more important causes. So it would be you know if only we'd thought of this a year ago, it would have been a really good time to talk about women in prison and talk about conditions for women in prison and talk about women in Yarlswood and talk about in a kind of coordinated and structured way. So that by the time the centenary came along, we could, we could have been marching down the road going, okay, now let's do this properly. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, we didn't do that in time. But- Foresight. <laughs> maybe, maybe our thing will be. Maybe our thing will be 101 years. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, I've got. I've got a question for you because you've obviously been participating in these events and doing these talks as well. Is do you think that feminism, as it is presented during these moments of celebration, or feminism generally? Has a tendency to present itself as apolitical, or completely depoliticized as a sort of it, antagonism.
2: It is quite apolitical, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, feminism, insofar as it's just rabid possessive individualism, is is apolitical in that way, because it's not I don't know, maybe I'm misdiagnosing politics, but I think yeah, obviously individualism is it is its own kind of politics. But if you if by political activism we mean solidarity and collective and working together, then, yeah, I think a lot of feminism is apolitical.
0: This is a a good point to move on. I just want to say that, I mean, listening to your discussion, I have that phrase from E.P. Thompson about the Luddites circling around my head, the enormous condescension of posterity, um, which I think is a a nice way of putting it. And the other thing is actually just underscores how young uh, meaningful democracy and suffrage is in this country, because of course, you don't have full enfranchisement until 1948. Uh, that's an you know, abolition of university constituencies, which is a completely bizarre thing. Although hmm. um,
2: well, no, we're, we're kind of getting those back now, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah,
0: just, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a really kind of striking. And of course, kind of the socialist cliche in response to that is to say, well, e- even kind of formal suffrage didn't entail democratisation of the economy. Um, you know, so formal democracy leaves those those questions of economic and distributive democracy unaddressed and other forms of democratisation beyond the vote, which have been a concern of kind of feminist movement over the course of the 20th century after the suffrage fight is mostly won. So is there a kind of specific feminist reading of that kind of democratisation about what it means to go beyond the vote in feminist terms?
1: I mean, Ellen Mikeson's words is great on this. In um, her reposte to, I think, Laclau and Mouffe, um, on People vs. Power Block and she kind of just comes back and says, look, you don't understand Marx and you don't understand democracy and that kind of wonderful... Hold on
2: a sec, go Leclerc and Chantal move out of fashion all of a sudden. <laughs> I only just caught up with these people.
1: I think, that, I think this is a much earlier beef as well. Okay. So I mean, is, I think is, they've is, come back in, fact, in fashion but I'm kind of on team... On Team Ellen on this one a bit. I just, Sorry, I, just, I actually
2: I cut you off before. What? what I mean, how have I mean, they misunderstood I Mark? Mean, I'm trying Marx? to think
1: like who's in vogue now? Maybe We're... like who's the real hipster out of the two of us? I really think there should be
2: some kind of memo on this.
1: <laughs> anyway, what? what Everyone's what, a posthumanist. So how just, are they misunderstood Mark? So, um, they sort of take uh, the French Revolution as like the birth of democracy, the birth of the field of the democratic. Mm. And Ellen McSinsworth says, "Well, no, actually, when you look at the birth of representative democracy, that's the collapse." of democratic potential, right? It reduces democratic participation to the moment of the ballot box rather than ongoing process of forming ideologies, putting things into practice, um, other forms of economic participation, social participation, etc, etc. And I think that's an interesting argument. And so I think then when we, this is what I wrote the article about, is that when we think about how do we canonize women's political participation and in general we well entirely we exclude anti-colonial movements yeah right even though you were essentially a british subject at this time right my great great was essentially a british subject at the same time she was shooting them um <laughs> sorry uh gchq i'm definitely not proud of that at all <laughs> um it's so that she was a british subject at the same time but we kind of work to exclude that history. And there was a different arena for political participation. And that was anti-colonial movements. And also Mm. the existence of those anti-colonial movements shaped the demand for suffrage. So I can't remember which faucet it was. Millicent or Mildred or did I make out Mildred? I don't know. Um, I swear there was two forces. Um, there
2: she... definitely were two forces because yeah. the one they put the statue up to was the wrong one. I oh, see. No, they, were two yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, they didn't put it wrong by accident. You had one job. No, no, it wasn't wrong by accident, like taking out the wrong kidney. It was like <laughs> they put they put up the wrong one. They put up the really they put up the really lame one and the really radical one they didn't put up.
1: Okay, well the lame one yeah. was making the argument because she was disgusted that Maori woman in New Zealand could vote, but British women here couldn't. Oh, okay, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: But that is actually a classic. classic. That's actually
2: classic. If you look at the suffragettes literature, one of their posters said, it's outrageous, all these men can vote while we can't, and there was like a guy on crutches mm. there was a guy in a lunatic asylum there was a i mean it was it was. they were basically saying how come cripples are allowed when mm. we're not yeah. <laughs> um you know they did it was a very splenetic mm. divisive creed in many ways and there was um
3: some kind of it was that um like demographic balancing act as to you know how much can women's suffrage cohere with um the broader maintenance of a Voting block that's mainly composed of um propertied men yeah and that's then that's exactly the kind of uh, why it's the nineteen eighteen moment where we see the rollout of women's suffrage is because nineteen eighteen is also a moment of enfranchisement for uh for men because you know the there uh, are only property... A few left yeah so. the, the property um why not yeah the property <laughs> um conditions for uh men over twenty one voting are removed after um the decimated populations of men after World War one come home and that means that even if you give these you know 8.4 million women as it turned out to be the vote there's still only 43 percent of uh, the voting populations and we can kind of you know we can kind of handle that
2: I mean it's, it's very interesting uh, that, that whole thing because there are two ways if you're gonna organize against a power block there are two ways to do it one of them is to is to kind of unite with everybody else who's screwed by that power block mm-hmm. and the other one is to persuade the power block that that you're actually you actually belong with them and everybody and nobody else does and it seemed like there was always that tension in the women's movement, just as there was in in on the eighties left. Actually, mm-hmm. it's like you know, half the Labour Party going, "We belong, we belong with you," <laughs> and the other half going, "You know, we we can, we actually can unite against this." And and I think that tension can actually be quite creative. But then yeah. the minute one side, the minute the bad side wins, you're looking you you're looking at a victory which was the result which was the result of the tension, but the tension is over.
1: But, I mean, one of the things I think is really interesting is that when we talk about women's political participation so we ignore the anti-colonial movement but also we don't talk about union organization or women's role in the union movement and i think that this is a kind of 1980s hangover so i mean one my favorite writer on the planet um apart from beyonce as a lyricist is probably Stuart hall and when he writes about kind of Um, Thatcher's folksy authoritarian populism. And one of the things that he writes about is the gendering of the trade union movement Mm, as mm, male, mm. these irresponsible, you know, um, braggadocious men. And it's the wives at home struggling with the cost of a pint of milk who are um, kind of left behind by that. And I think that even now when you bring up, well, hang on, we're celebrating the vote, but we're not talking about really restrictive anti-trade union policy, which impacts women, which... um, Constrains us from being able to lobby for um, better conditions collectively. We don't think about that. As...
0: There's this Tesco case before the court uh, at the moment. This this gender pay gap case, which seems quite interesting. I think on that front because it, it it kind of brings to the forefront not just uh, the gender pay gap, but the kind of structural division um, of the way in which capital values kinds of labour. Mm. Um, so so uh, because so. Tesco's defence as I understand it in the case. So the case is about the the division of of pay between warehouse workers and checkout staff, one of which is overwhelmingly male and one of which is overwhelmingly female. Um and my understanding of Tesco's defence is that well actually you know you you know if you're a woman and you want to go and work in the warehouse you can do that so it's not it's not unequal pay. Um, and the claim is that actually um, this this just isn't true. And this is an important case, right? Because it it, it this is kind of, the possible sum is enormous. It's it's in the billions, right? The the amount that that Tesco would be liable for. Um, So so this kind of stuff seems to me to connect quite strongly to the question of of trade unionism.
2: But that bit, it does connect, but actually it connects in quite an unfortunate way to your Mm. point, which is that the kind of big correlative was that 2012 case of Birmingham council who had been overpaying their bin men and underpaying their care workers. And the way they'd done it, they had them on the same hourly rate, which I also think is bullshit, by the way. Sorry, is that another...
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> done it again. Sorry, which, I, okay.
2: which I do think is wrong because care work is incredibly skilled, mm-hmm. but because women can do it, everybody thinks it's really easy. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas I think, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think being a bin man is that hard. Whereas being a care worker is like hard and soft skills up the up the wazoo. It's really really mm. hard. So even to put them on the same hourly rate, I think was wrong to begin with. But um, they they didn't argue that. They argued that the binmen were getting these bonuses and this overtime which the care workers weren't getting, and the, um, the care workers got did get a big payout from that but it took them six years. The point being that it was, GMB were terrible on that. They were terrible on gender rights, they were terrible on the pay gap they were working full pelt at maintaining the bin men's bonuses and they didn't see it as a pay issue at all until they ended up in court over it. So I don't think it is, a str- I think the kind of women's element of the trade union movement is frequently and habitually erased as a, per, per that Thatcher agenda but I think also the union movement does have a case to answer mm-hmm. on a case by case basis. This is actually
3: one of the uh, one of the factors that can be possibly credited with um driving um working class women who actually you know originated things like the you know rallies for equal pay the original um the original um like petition strike for um for equal voting rights was in like 1832 I think from a, a group of women card setters in a factory in Yorkshire. Um but they were so um Thoroughly um, dismissed and marginalised by the male trade union movement, that that was something that um, was actually a, a factor behind their um, they're relying behind the WSPU and other kinds of um, suffrage movements because you know they were genuinely um, a, a source of of terror to um, to male trade union movements because they thought that. You know, an entry of an an enormous um, part of the population into the workforce would be a source of degrading their own wages. I just um, want to read read to you from uh, uh, a quote from Henry Broadhurst from the TUC Congress in uh, 1875, um, which is where he urged um, them to bring about... Um, a condition where our wives and daughters would be in their proper sphere at home instead of br- being dragged into competition for livelihood against the great and strong men of the world. And this is the kind of tension yeah, that yeah, working yeah, class yeah. women's organization uh, has to uh, continually contend with because they are at one point marginalized by, um, uh, by their position as working class women. Women in the broader suffrage struggle, and by their position as women in the broader working class struggle, mm. but continually you see that these movements are actually the ones that that are most efficient at getting the goods. I think what's been said about um, the the franchise to some to some degree containing or or narrowing our version of what democratization looks like is completely true, but also not something that um, working class women. Stood for because you know obviously that the they saw the franchise as not in the, an end in itself because it was actually for something. It was in order to put pressure on politicians in the formal sphere to try and ameliorate the terrible, terrible working conditions that they were they were experiencing. For instance,
0: I want to move us on just to think about the contemporary, and one of the ways to do that I think is to think about the way in which um, feminism has transformed over the course of particularly. Um, the experience of the Thatcherite period and sort of the post-Thatcherite period. And I think mm. the, 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 the great, one of the great sort of uh, books uh, that, that, that really illuminated me on this was Beyond the Fragments, which is a collaboration initially in uh, 1979 between Sheila Rowbottom, Lynn Siegel uh, and Hilary Wainwright. Uh, and this was, you know, women from three different kind of left political traditions coming together to kind of reject the the way in which these kind of uh, ultra-centralised or kind of uh, you know far-left parties, the SWP, for instance, as was. Um, but there was another edition a couple of years ago, and it was reflecting on, you know, what it meant to be having those arguments then after the 70s in which you could take for granted a kind of left radicalism being you know present in industrial struggle and there, there being a kind of you know functioning <laughs> political left right divide and divide. and i just thought it would be nice to just to read something very short from sheila rowbottom uh, in her kind of reflective essay in in the new edition She she writes In the 1960s and 70s, inspired by movements against imperialism, people of colour, women and gays imagined a politics of liberation which went beyond rights or access to resources. Liberation suggested transformation, not simply of the circumstances of daily life, but of being and relating. Instead of an individualism of selfishness and greed, there was to be be self-definition and expression instead of competition, association, trust and cooperation. This is the future I still envisage and want to help bring about. But I have to take a deeper breath before admitting it. So she's really, you know, she's saying that that these, these kind of political visions, which you know she felt that she could strive for then, have been so imperiled by by the kind of change in political common sense over the course of the eighties uh, and and the nineties that that it, yeah, it seems yeah, almost yeah, yeah. outrageous to claim them now. Mm-hmm. And this is particularly true in Lynn's contribution to the book, Lynn Siegel's contribution to the book, where she writes about, um, you know, uh, as a single mother coming to London. In, in the seventies, and and ha- you know, developing new critiques of the kind of paternalism of the welfare state, mm. and then to be faced with its destruction. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, you yeah. Know, So, 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 what does that kind of feminism look
2: I know. like now? Well, it, it, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because because you can see exactly the same thing, have, kind of replaying post-coalition government that mm. that femin- the kind of fourth wave feminism was, kind of getting to a new way of looking at things, and then suddenly. The, the, the kind of mass destruction of the support system was so immediate that almost you didn't have time to have kind of conversations about anything deeper because you were too busy going, wait a minute, 86% of these cuts are hitting women. and that, And that became the... And I think I think it's been kind of wrong-footed in the same by the same structural forces, which is people who don't care. <laughs> you know. Um, anyway, I don't know. You guys, you guys must know. I mean, you're fourth-wave feminists.
1: I mean, do you know what I? I sometimes I I, of all the labels that I would use to describe my politics, feminism is probably the one that I like bring out my pocket least often, and and the reason why that is, isn't because I'm not deeply critical of gender depressions it's not because i think that you know if everything's great as a woman what's everyone complaining about it's not that it's because it's kind of going back to this you know where is the antagonism and where is the potential to form a social movement is that this feminism which presents itself as non-ideological i just can't really get on board with it's a label which then means which means nothing to me and you know I, i remember you mentioned this the other night which is When we celebrate these centenaries, we kind of get sucked into a bit of a lowest common denominator feminism, which is then anyone who's talking about anything to do with being a woman automatically becomes a feminist or any demand (laughs) is the only kind of feminist demand to make. So Mm -hmm. there's really good stuff to be done on period poverty. And I am glad it's happening. But you made the point of, well, if you can't afford tampons You also probably can't afford socks and where is that rallying call? I guess my problem with it was that um, I'm really
2: in favour of people organising around and campaigning on an issue that they know is going to be vivid and bring their daily life struggle vividly to life for people who aren't sharing it so you know the the actual kind of period poverty campaign I'm really in favor of but what I couldn't stomach was a Labour MP sitting there and going I was on that march I was doing it. I was there and I'm happy to say I forced a vote in parliament and now tampons are going to be free for everyone Um, and it was that, actually sorry scratch that tampons are not going to be free for everyone um but it was it is that kind of appropriation of campaigning energy mm. which i think also happens around a in centenary that you know they'll just they, they, they will just cherry pick anything people who don't want to really fight change fight for change will cherry pick anything that they, that comes along whether it's amber rudd the, the, kind of getting all tear jerky about the Achievements of the suffragettes, or Angela Rayner getting all kind of puffed out. No, it wasn't Angela Rayner. Sorry, it's Jess Phillips. What am mm. I talking about? That's really <laughs> outrageous. <laughs> I'm really sorry to both of you. Or Jess Phillips kind of getting quite puffed chesty about um, about the, the period marches. It's 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 an act of appropriation, and I think really it would be really helpful. It, it, quite aside from the whether or not you are an ideological enough feminist to wonder what you're appropriating when you take pride in a movement.
3: And I think it's it speaks to a quite a limited understanding of what it is to exist as a woman, right? Because we have this uh, ideology surrounding gender which collapses womanhood into like a certain biological function which usually involves having periods and so I mean I guess if you think that that is the sort of horizon of feminist struggle that's kind of I mean, I I kind of get why you would be attracted to that because it's an easy thing to solve, right? We don't need to think about socks when we can just think about tampons. But really, when you when you look at um, like gender as a, as a technology mm. um, regulating how you know our our economic lives are structured, and as a, as in a technology that um, allows that a certain amount of labour that's you know socially reproductive labour, domestic labour to be you know. Uh, obligated to be done for free by a certain sector of the populace, that understanding of gender uh, cleaves to an understanding of gender justice, which is much more radical and much more transformative and Mm. much more undermining of the kind of uh, economic systems in which, you know, your amber Rudds of this world, you know, are deeply bound up with and deeply personally invested in. And I'm not just talking about invested in as in, like, you know, emotionally invested. in. I'm talking about, like, literally they have, like, physical money investment. I
1: think that there are two things. And sometimes these questions get mixed up and, and the answers get mistaken for one another. And I think that these two questions kind of underpin all, all of political strategy. So I'm just going to be really reductive because I like doing that. And the first one is, what do we need that we lack in order to lead dignified lives? And I think that's where things like talking about tampons and stuff is really important. When mm-hmm. you read accounts of like I had to ration my sanitary products this month and it was humiliating and it was frightening, or well, you hear about that's dangerous uh, the, as well. the like, you know, um sanitary products that are offered to people in prisons, for instance, right? Like, you know, you think, well, you know, for for us to be talking about this, you know, wider context, you do have to address this immediacy. And then the other one is what is it that is preventing people from leading those dignified lives? Why is it we can't have those things? And I think that sometimes people mistake the symptom for the horizon. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, this
3: is why, I mean, <laughs> Emma Goldman, who was, you know, famously um, a, an anarchist, very radical. Um, the thing that she was actually um, arrested for and deported for was not just, you know, her seditious organizing in, in broader political struggles, but it was also um, handing out birth control to poor women mm. and also information about how to use that birth control which was then uh, made but, illegal. With the
2: problem with the biological stuff and, and the kind of organising and campaigning and feeling solidarity around biological stuff I realised the other day was when somebody on Radio 4 was having an argument with somebody else on Radio 4 and unfortunately <laughs> I didn't confer to memory any of their names but they were, about the, they were talking about the trans debate and who was a woman and who wasn't a woman and the person who was kind of anti-calling trans women women who wanted to call them, God knows what she wanted to call them actually, she wasn't really clear. Um, but she said the reason she didn't want to call a trans woman a woman was because women, biological women, have experiences that anybody, that whether you want to be a woman or not, you can't possibly imagine, um, and, those, and those are the kind of those are the parameters of our oppression. And to have people kind of invade that space when they weren't inside those parameters. Um, they can, they, you know, they, they can't. And I was thinking, it's so interesting, because if you're saying all women are oppressed in exactly the same way, because of their biological attributes, then basically, the only oppression you're talking about is sexual violence and period pain. And actually, yeah, labor, labor is terrible
1: um, <laughs> um but you know and those, those three affects trans women
2: too yeah 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 exactly but but those kind of the in fact yeah we have to leave out sexual violence yeah. because that does affect so look we're, we're yeah. basically talking about actually pe- at
1: greater rates we're basically yeah.
2: talking about period pain and Labour, they want us to, they want us to have a kind of solidarity around, it's like having a solidarity around Qatar, you just can't, you can't, you can't build your, that's the <laughs> ultimate apolitical solidarity, isn't it? It's just, you can't build your solidarity around also that. also,
1: you can say this aspect of your life experience is really important to you, and you can talk about that with other people and find that really important, but also, I'm a brown woman, I've got a ton of experiences that you don't yeah, exactly. have, on the basis of how, of what my biological appearance how that affects me moving through this world does that mean i'm more of a woman than you doesn't mean i'm less of a woman than you no you'd say to reduce it to that is is ridiculous
2: yeah yeah all the class differences you all experience all your oppression differently apart from the raw nuts and bolts of your physicality it's just ridiculous and so
0: i think there's an interesting in question <laughs> that kind of emerges here because like some of the vocabulary we're using just just strikes me that there is well there certainly has been a change in the way in which people sort of talk about feminism or talk, you know, femi- you know, the way in which feminist theory has developed over the course of the 20th century. Um, and, you know, and I think it's endlessly fascinating. And it's also, for me, one of the things that's, that's striking is the way in which kind of queer theory and um, also kind of radical gay subjectivities and radical gay theory emerges out of kind of a deep engagement with feminist thought in sort of 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, but, but I guess, you know, one of the things that's striking to me when I'm reading kind of contemporary feminist theory and Particularly, feminist journalism is that its intellectual underpinnings seem to have changed quite profoundly over the course of the 20th century. So there's a lot of conversation about privilege, um, which mm. which I think uh, is certainly a double-edged sword. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's also like a lot of, of conversation about trauma and woundedness yeah, and these yeah, things yeah, yeah, being yeah, kind on. of central uh, to to what it means to, to think about feminism today. What do you make of that?
2: I, I was I was because I was writing something about Jessica Jones last night. Um, and trying to talk about the kind of what what, what is about it? Sorry. For those of you who aren't aware, she's a Marvel character made into a Netflix character played by Kristen Ritter, and it's just entering its second season. And basically, the questions were, is trauma and PTSD, are they the new depression? Are they the kind of hot button issues? Are they the things that everybody has to have now? And secondly, what does it mean to have a superhero with a load of sexual, with a load of kind of sexual assault trauma? Because the whole thing about being a victim, is that your is you know the the very idea of a strong victim is completely antithetical to almost all culture you know we just don't and, and victims are kind of homogenized by their weakness whereas villains are very differentiated by their villainy and so it's quite weird to have a kind of a superhero victim who can actually punch people and is still a victim and it was kind of and I thought what it actually people who t- who talk about there's a huge amount of distrust of the tr- of the language of trauma and, and post traumatic stress as though even to accept that that exists is to just allow people to be snowflakes and kind of weak and you're letting a gen- you're letting in a generation of kind of pathetic people and it's it and it comes back to what you were saying the other night actually ash about it come, it's a it's a sort of active not listening they talk about active listening in hostage situations i think politically we're in an active not listening phase <laughs> where uh, there is a kind of there is this kind of voice which says I, I don't want to hear what you mean when you say trauma i don't want mm. to hear what you mean when you say sexual assault i don't want to hear what you mean when you say P- ptsd I, I literally don't want to hear it yeah
3: and there's there's a sort of um, in that <laughs> Uh, Calls on the language of of respectability, of course, and of uh, things that is uh, that it is dignified to say in the public realm, of course, things that uh, charges that we use to dismiss the speech of uh, suffragettes, interestingly as well. But um, I'm I'm so conflicted about this language because I think on one hand, one of the great Gifts and great advances of um, feminism and uh, feminist epistemology more more specifically is to bring uh trauma and personal experience into the realm of the mm-hmm, political mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, even yeah. by pointing out like pointing to to an an epistemic vacuum to say that you can't understand this experience in the same way that I can because it's um it's experientially delimited but it's still it's still of public interest right not all experiences that are political are available to the public in this sort of you know Rawlsian veil of ignorance kind of way Mm. that having been said I'm also um troubled by the way in which um this call to attention to um To the way in which individuals live, political experience has a tendency to collapse the political into individual experience, which becomes just a way of of atomizing, um, of atomizing um, us from one another. And requires
0: public disclosure. And
1: it Mm -hmm. requires public disclosure, like you know, all all
2: sort of. um, I know, I know. The disclosure requirement is so dicey. I kind of
1: hate it. I was reading um, a Gabby Hinsliff comment piece that came out today, which was. Um, which was kind of l- dealing with Tracy Emin's comments from Newsnight, and kind of uh, you know thinking about. Did she you mention know, how much you
2: smashed it?
0: She didn't
2: mention me at all. She actually only I said she like Harmon
1: and Emin. And I was she, like, she probably didn't see you. i was probably just like, oh, it, what's that noise? It's just like, it's just a disembodied voice with a gold chain. It's a like... disembodied gobby voice. Let's <laughs> ignore that. Um, but she was talking about Tracy Emin being like, you know, to be a woman is just excruciating agony all the time. And I was thinking about whose suffering gets to be turned into trauma yeah, yeah, and yeah, whose yeah. suffering is mm. just almost like a, a precondition of their existence mm. and, and that's mm. not really challenged. It's biological yeah, 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 and, yeah. And I was thinking about um, you know, I think that talking about trauma is really useful and, and politicizing sexual assault is really important and mm-hmm. looking at that as, as an organizational factor and how our society functions is really, really important. But why don't we talk about trauma for Marcia Rigg, who lost her brother Sean Rigg, who was killed at Brixton police station? Yeah, 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 yeah. We just valorise her as an organizer and then she's kind of dehumanized as a machine. Mm-hmm. But also to apply the language of trauma would almost be kind of then hermetically sealing her off and taking her out of that organizational context that she's placed her in and taking her out of the social networks that she's uh developed so i you know and you don't want to also speak on behalf of someone else so i think that for me i find um it useful to sometimes oscillate between talking about yeah, trauma yeah, yeah. and talking about suffering because you one you can suffer collectively and yeah. you can have collective responses to suffering in a way that Trauma. I don't think. Yeah, invites. you can't
2: be traumatized, collectively. I mean, you know the whole kind of Claire Fox, um, you know, Snowflake Generation. I don't know who Claire Fox is. Oh God, okay. she's she's sure. really she's, <laughs> she's 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 um she's the sm- stupid thing is, because <laughs> <look>, she's massive <laughs> on Spike. She started she was she started Marxism today, didn't she? And then she did the, she does the Institute of Ideas thing. She's on Moral Maze. She's on Spike. Basically, um, anything that most sensible people think, she thinks the opposite and it's very very professionally. annoying professionally yeah. <laughs> once in a blue moon she's quite a likeable person and once in a blue moon when most people the, the thing that most people think does happen to be wrong then she says she says it in quite an elegant way and you think i you, you're fine actually and then she'll come out with something appalling like, i oh no <laughs> she's the soft clock yeah 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 but she so she's got this complete obsession with snowflakes and kind of people who can't people who feel victimized by a dirty look and 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 I kind of find it interesting in the way that it elides weakness and victimhood. And so it's like, of course, if we're going to say being a victim makes you weak or only weak people are victims, then to have women owning their trauma is really problematic because you've got a generation of women who are, who, who are kind of completely turned into a homogenous, weak mulch. <laughs>
0: I'm going to have to jump in here because we only have a couple of minutes left. So uh, I was going to ask you a final question and perhaps a response could be consigned to one single sentence. Um, The Me Too moment has been sort of striking all over the place. Um, We have, of course, an event coming up, Me Too What Next, at the end of this month. Um, Is it a sea change?
3: Um, It's certainly a sea change in uh, the way we view collective trauma because If it is the case, as has been shown by the Me Too movement, that, you know, the overwhelming majority of women experience this, then that means that... uh victimhood isn't weakness. It's actually, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's, not, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an incredibly powerful moment. But also, you know, we've neglected the economic question, but maybe we'll <laughs> deal with that at our event on the 28th of February.
0: Yes, there we go. Okay, well, thank you all for your contributions today. It's been great having you in the studio. Uh, we will be back at the same time in the same place next week. And why don't you, dear listener, pop over to the Resonance FM fundraiser and give us a little bit of cash. <laughs> I've been James Butler. This has been Navarro FM. Bye-bye. Bye bye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.